good to see you back tonight. Take your copy of God's Word and go to Psalm 127. And when you get there, keep your place, and you might want to go over to 1 Kings chapter 3 as well, because we'll go back and forth for just a moment. Psalm 127 is a psalm in our series, in our study, about uh, when God builds a house, when God builds a house. The psalm is a reminder uh, that God's providence, God's sovereign providence, is instrumental in all that we do. It is a reminder that the only way we can really be successful in the Christian life is to have God's blessing on what we're doing. And the way to have God's blessing on what we're doing is to be doing what God's doing, to be doing what God's called us to do. In other words, as I've heard some preachers put it, if you're plowing in God's field, you're pretty much guaranteed success because it's his field, okay? Uh, success, if you will, is not always what we think it is. We have ways of labeling things as successful. Take, for instance, a ministry, a church ministry. We might label a church ministry as successful based on membership and numbers of attendees, pre-COVID, I might say. Uh, we might measure success on how many baptisms you do in a year and you know how many, how many ministries you have going on. But I would suggest to you that all of those external things are not, are not in themselves a totality of success. Sometimes those are man-made measurements of success. I would suggest that God measures success by the simplicity of us being obedient and doing what he's called us to do. That's success, just doing what God's called us to do. This psalm is about recognizing that God is the one who gives the increase. Now, the reason I said you might want to look at 1 Kings chapter 3 for a moment is I believe this psalm, obviously David was moved by the Holy Spirit to write this, but as a father, he certainly would have wanted Solomon to understand what he was saying. In other words, Solomon, in all of your greatness, you can never really be successful unless God's blessing you. Now, let's remember what happened to Solomon. Let's remember how Solomon came to the throne, if you will. And you don't have, you can turn there if you'd like, and I'll read it to you. First Kings chapter 3, verse 5. Listen to this. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? That's a very unique verse. In fact, I don't recall anywhere else in the Bible where God makes that offer to anybody else. We could call that God giving Solomon a blank check. Solomon, I'm going to sign this check. You just fill it in. That's pretty impressive that God would say to Solomon, ask me what you want. Now think about this. God wouldn't say, ask me what you want, if he wasn't willing to give him what he was going to ask. Okay? Now Solomon's response is even more amazing for a young man. Look at verses 6 to 9. And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. In other words, Solomon said, I know the only reason I'm coming to the throne is because you ordained it, because you're blessing my dad. Listen to what else he says. Now, O Lord my God, verse 7, 
You have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. There's humility. That's a good start. Verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Now here's his request. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now of all the things you would think a young man might ask for, that ain't on the list. I mean, just being completely honest about it. If God says to you, tell me what you want, you're probably not thinking, I need an understanding heart. That's probably not like the thing that just like really jumps out at you right away, right? But that's what Solomon said. Solomon said, Lord, you, you, you blessed my dad. He was on the throne. He's a godly man. And then you blessed him by putting a son on the throne. And, and he admitted, he said, I'm just a child. And he's a grown man at this time. But he said, I'm just a child. I don't know, I don't know if I should go out or come in. And, and God, these are your people. This is your nation. And you've blessed them. Look at the number of them. He said, I don't know how to judge them. So God, what I really need is a, is a heart that understands justice, that I can discern from right and wrong. Because what was a king's job? Rule over the people as an under shepherd to, to bring justice among the people, to not be oppressive. And he said, I don't know how to do any of that. Now listen to God's response. This is pretty good too. Verse 10. The speech pleased the Lord, you think? Okay. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this thing, verse 11. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself or have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the, uh, the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, listen to verse 12. Behold, I have done according to your words. God said, I'm gonna give you what you asked for. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there is none been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. Well, that's pretty unique. Now look at verse 13. And I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings of your days. That's a great passage. Now here's why I read that to you. David, his dad writes, unless God builds the house, you're working in vain. Now, David's got a son. Now, think about this. Solomon was always the smartest guy in the room. He didn't have to think he was. He was. Solomon was always the richest guy in the room. He didn't have to think he was. He was. Solomon was always the most famous guy in the room. That wasn't his imagination. He was. Solomon was the man because God made him the man. The queen of Sheba heard about how great his kingdom was and made a trip all the way to Jerusalem. And you know what she said to Solomon after she'd been there? The half has not been told. This is amazing. You know what David's saying to his boy? You didn't do that on your own. And the only reason you can build a house or a kingdom is because God has blessed you. Now, I suggest to you there are many lessons here for us to learn in the Christian life. And let's consider a few of them, beginning in Psalm 127, verse 1. Look at it with me. David said, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake for nothing in vain, it says. Now, the term house there is a metaphor that can be applied to a lot of things. 
If you want to take it in this most literal sense, then yes, we're going to physically build a structure, build a house. But even in that, unless God blesses it, you're building in vain. You're, you're not really getting anywhere. But the, the more applicable understanding of this is to any organization, any structure, any government, any civic function, any local assembly, the family, all of these things that we invest in, that we build, what David is saying here is unless God is involved in those things, we labor in vain. We cannot do it. We can't build anything of lasting value unless God's involved in it. Let me give you three examples. Just We can make applications all night. Let me give you three. How about in the professional business world? And we'll just talk about Christians. We don't even get involved in lost people in the business world. But what about Christians? If God gives you and has given you some expertise, some, some personality, some, some, uh, some ability, and you have been successful in the business world, or you decide to start a business and you're gonna use your skills to earn a living for yourself, that expertise, that, that ability that God's given you comes from Him. We didn't get that on our own. Let's just say for the sake of argument that you're born with an IQ that they don't have a scale big enough to measure, okay? In other words, you're just a really smart man or woman. And I've met a few people like that and they kind of irritate you, don't they? I mean, because they just know everything. But let's say God did that. Let's say God gives you that kind of intelligence. You just, you know, you finish college in the 10th grade and whatever. Well, you know what? You didn't do that for yourself. God created you in the womb and God gave you that ability. God gave you that skill. Think for a moment about some men in the Bible. Job comes to mind. Why in the world did that whole contest with God get started? Because Job was so blessed of God, the richest man in the East and the wisest and the biggest family and everything, the most land, the most cattle, the most everything. Satan looks at God and goes, the only reason he worships you is because you gave him all that stuff. God said, well, take it away from him and see what happens. I'm not wanting to be part of a contest like that. How about you? But anyway, that's the contest. But God blessed Job. How about Abraham? Did Abraham? Is Abraham the reason he's the father of a nation? No. God said, I'm going to bless you. In fact, Abraham didn't have a son until he was past childbearing age. God always did it so that you know he did it. How about lost people? Let's throw them in the hopper. Do lost people achieve anything without God allowing them to do it? Nope. Now, they don't know God allows them to do it. And they don't know it's God who put them where they are particularly leaders or rulers or people who are in place, they don't know. You say, are you sure? Oh, I'm sure. Remember a guy named Nebuchadnezzar? He was, as, he was about as bad as they come. He was a despot, man, life and death, killing people, throwing them in the fire, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And God said, oh, he's my servant. Remember that? God said, Daniel, well, there's my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Excuse me, Lord. Who? No, Nebuchadnezzar. That, you mean the guy? You mean that guy? You mean the one who's chopping people's heads off and throwing them in the fire and, and, and the guy who doesn't know you, the pagan, the pagan guy, Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, he's my servant. I think Nebuchadnezzar got saved later, by the way, but that's another story. How about Cyrus the Great? We just read it a couple Sundays ago, right? The, the Israelites are in captivity and Cyrus makes this decree. Well, the God of heaven, the God of the Jews, the great God, the God who's the God of everything told me to let them go, so I'm gonna let them go. What? Excuse me? Pagan, you know, pagan Persian king is, is declaring the sovereignty of God. Here, what I'm telling you is what David said here is no matter what business, no matter what we might uh, uh, put our, our hand to to do, God is in it. If God's in it, then you're going to be successful. To the, listen, to the degree God wants you to be successful. 
You say, well, you know, I have this business and I want to be a millionaire. Okay, let me break it to you. You ready? God may not want you to be a millionaire. You say, why wouldn't God want me to be a millionaire? I don't know. Ask him. Maybe you can't handle a million dollars. Maybe I can't. I don't know. But you understand God controls our success and God controls what we do in business. Hey, how about the local church? Let's talk about that real quick. When, when we, you, you, you come to church and you, you do ministry and if you're on staff, you know, we get, we, we get, we're on the payroll and you pay us for our, our 40 hours. If it were only 40 hours, that would be great. But, you, you know, you pay us for our, our 40 hours and we, and we do our thing and, and everybody's doing ministry and doing what we do. And you say, well, you know, some churches will say, well, you know, we expect the pastor to, to you know, lay out this vision for the future of the church and, to, and have this growth plan so that, you know, in 10 years we're from this membership to that membership. You want me to let you in on how this works? You open that book and you share the gospel with people and you teach the Bible and you minister to people and you love on them and you lead people to Jesus and you baptize them and you let God worry about how big the church gets. You let God worry about how many buildings you have. You let God worry about that stuff. And if you do the thing that God told you to do, then he will, listen, he will make the church what he wants it to be. You know why? Get this, it's his church. Ain't, it ain't my church. It ain't even your church. You say, well, I'm a member here. It ain't your church. <laughs> the born-again body of Christ belongs to Jesus. And you know what we are? We're just under-shepherds. The chief shepherd just said, hey, take care of this part of my flock for a little while. And you know why for a little while? Because when I die and go to heaven, if Jesus ain't come back, somebody else is going to be standing up here. And God just said, take care, take care of this part of my flock for a little while. So do you know what success is in the church? Doing what God told you to do. Taking care of the part that God told you to take care of. You say, yeah, but, you know, I heard a preacher say, and I've heard this too. You know, if a church isn't growing numerically, it's dead and a dead church and it's, you know. Stop, stop. You remember in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower and the seeds? The guy goes out and he throws the seed out there and he sees the word of God and the soil's the hearts of man and you know the whole deal, right? Well, part of it falls on good soil, right? Which is the hearts that are receptive and people getting saved. Well, even in the good soil, remember this? Listen, some brought forth a hundredfold, it doubled. And there's some hundredfold preachers and churches. And then some 60. And there's some 60-fold preachers and churches. Oh, and get this, some are 30, which ain't like 100. And there are some 30-fold preachers and churches. Who determines that? Wait, wait for it. Who, who, who determines who's 100 and who's 60 and who's 30? Not us. Not me or you. God does. And watch this. This is good stuff. We're going to do this on Sunday morning. Listen. When we stand in front of Jesus, watch this. The dude who was a 30-fold, hardworking, obedient servant is going to get the same reward, exactly the same, as the guy who was a 100-fold. That's a pretty good deal, right? Because why? 
Because only success comes through God. It doesn't come through man. It doesn't matter what plans we come up with and how hard we work. Now listen, that's not an excuse for laziness, and you understand that. But we can't, we, we can't do any more than God's determined for us to do. That's the point. So in business, in the church, and let me make one more real quick application. How about the family? How about the family? <clears throat> now all of you here who have children, and you know this, you can do everything right. I mean, man, you can teach them God's word and you can have them in church and you can, be, you can, you can live the right life in front of them. I mean, you can do it right. Not be hypocritical where they, you say one thing at church and at home you're different. The kids see that. Well, that, that doesn't count because you're going to mess them up. But I mean right. You're, you're walking with Jesus. They know you're human. They know you're not perfect. But, but, man, you're teaching them at home and you're teaching them at church. And they get grown and they decide to go off the rails. That can happen. Now, you pray it don't happen, but I've seen it happen, okay? They can just decide, man, because why? They become grown, and they got to stand before God on their own two feet, right? But listen, you know what makes a home a success? Even if you do it all right, the last ingredient that makes it all work is God. God dealing with that kid's heart. God drawing them to be saved. You can't make them get saved. You can't make the home what it ought to be. God, the Holy Spirit, has to do that. Listen, if it's left up to me to make the home what it's supposed to be, it'll be a mess. And that's what's wrong with a lot of people's marriages. They don't have God in it. They don't have the Holy Spirit in it. So when David said, unless God builds the house, we're wasting our time. Man, that applies to everything, doesn't it? Everything. Now, look at verse 2. He takes it a step further. Because here's what some people will say. <clears throat> the thing that I think ought to be happening ain't happening, so I'm going to work harder. I'm going to put in more time. It ain't happening, so I'm going, I'm going to redouble my efforts. Nothing wrong with working hard. I don't like laziness. But what he's saying here is we're really bucking the system, and we think we're going to make it happen. Look at verse 2. It is vain or empty for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Now listen to what God's saying here through David. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many, how many unique plans or styles or things we come up with, if it's not what God's called us to do, you're beating your head against the wall. That's what he's saying. It's vain to work hard if we're fighting against God. If we're working hard against God. Here's the prime, here's the prime example in all the Bible, the Apostle Paul. Think about it. The dude's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. The guy is highly educated. Man, he's, he's, a, he's an honor student among the Pharisees, and he thinks he's doing God a favor persecuting the church. And he's vigilant about it. Man, I mean, he's committed to it. He's traveling. He's hunting people down. He's arresting them because why? He's serving God. Not really. Because he's not saved, and he's not doing what God wants him to do. And when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul. It's really hard for you to kick against the pricks, against the goads. Now, that would have been a shock to Paul. He'd say, what do you mean I'm, I'm bucking against the, against the goads? I'm kicking against the goads. Well, you're persecuting me, which means you're persecuting my church. You see, we can think we're doing right, and we're not doing right. And we can work hard. Notice what he says right here. The person rises up early and sits up late. Now, I don't like that. Do you like that? I mean, that's not good. That means you're not getting any sleep is what that means. 
It means, it means, listen, you're getting up early to work hard, and then you're working into the night, thinking that you're making way and getting, getting no sleep. I'm going to tell you something, and most of y'all probably did it when you were young. When I was a young fella, it killed me now. I got four hours of sleep a night. I'd go all week getting four hours. Man, I'd, I'd work, stay up late working, go to bed, get up. The rooster was a surprise I was up. Man, he, you know, the alarm goes off at four o'clock in the morning. The rooster's like, man, you're crazy. I'd drive an hour to Mayport, work till dark, come home, go to bed at midnight, get up at four. Man, I did that a long time. And one Friday I came home and about passed out in the yard. And I thought, man, I'm tired and I went and got into bed. You know what? You're not productive when you do that, I'm going to tell you. You can do that for a little while, but your body will quit at some point. Your body will say, okay, that's enough of that. Because four hours of sleep is not good. Listen, it's right here in the Bible. You can, you can rise up early, you can sit up late, and you can eat the bread of sorrows, because that's what that is. That's stress and that strain. Listen, unless God's blessing you in it, you're wasting your time. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to help you. People typically stay up late, they sleep in in the morning. If they go to bed early, they get up early so that they get their rest. David said, if you do this, you're not helping yourself. It's not the recipe to success. Notice, he gives, it says here, for he gives his beloved sleep. Man, I like that. That's the opposite of that. You know what the Christian does? The Christian says, man, I'm in a jam here. This is hard. My business, man, I'm working hard. But the Christian knows when to turn that thing over to Jesus and say, Lord, I have done everything I can do. Man, I've worked hard. I put in a 12-hour day, and I just can't fix this thing. So you know what? Here you go. And you go get into bed, and you lay your head on the pillow, and you're, you're just in perfect peace because you know Jesus got it. You say, man, can you do that? Oh, you can do that. Let me, let me give you a testimony. On aircraft carrier, I was in charge of, uh, of resources that totaled 2 or $3 million. And these were highly preferable resources, right? And so every four months, I had to balance the books. And I was in my office one night on the aircraft carrier with my calculator going to town. And uh, guess what happened? It wasn't balancing. It was off about $70,000. Well, wasn't no way I was walking into the commander's office and going, we lost $70,000. Hope you're happy. That wasn't happening. So, man, I was down there until about 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I couldn't figure it out. This is what I did. Nobody else in the office that time of night. They're all in Iraq. That's where I should have been. So I just got down right there in the office and said, Lord, I need you to find this $70,000 because I don't know where it's at. I closed up the books, went and got my rack and went to sleep. Didn't give it another thought. Honest goodness. Woke up the next morning, took a shower, went down there and ate some fine Navy chow. Went down to my office, and in a half hour, I found what the problem was. I'm telling you, listen, I'm, this stuff is lived out. It's fleshed out. You, you, listen, if you will put God's word to the test, it works. I'm just telling you, okay? Trust God. You go there. Now, let, let me tell you two things we learned right here real quick. Number one, we learned that worrying, worrying is emptiness. It's vanity especially if you're a child of God. Because what is it we most often worry about? Stuff that we have no control over. Now, how foolish is that? I'm sitting around worrying about stuff that there isn't a thing in the world I can do about. Nothing. 
as a child of God, what do you do with that? Again, you go to Jesus and you say, Lord, this thing bothers me. It's going to be a problem. And there ain't a thing I can do about it. Here you go. Do something with it. Do, do, do whatever you do, but do something with it. And I'm not going to worry about it anymore. And every time I've ever done that, God takes care of it. God just takes care of it. Usually in ways I never even thought of. But he just does it. Worrying. Now, I'm not going to read you the whole passage, but in Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, you can go on and look it up. Jesus, Jesus gives his disciples this whole dissertation about worry. He says, don't worry about stuff. L listen to the first verse in, in verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Well, that's pretty definitive, isn't it? Jesus looks at all of his followers and says, would you stop worrying about your life? Would you stop worrying about what's going on in your life? Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you, where you're going to live. And again, it's not, a, not an excuse for laziness. But the point is, Jesus said, you do what I told you to do, and I'll take care of all the rest of the stuff. You just do what I told you to do. And part of what God told us to do was take care of our families and work, right? So God said, you do that, and I'll do what I do. I'll take care of what you need to eat. I'll take care of where you live. I'll take care of what you wear. And then he said, oh, you of little faith. Listen to this part. But seek you first the kingdom of God and all that stuff that you're worrying about, I'll take care of it. Man, that's good stuff. That right there will make you sleep good at night. That right there will let you put your head on the pillow and know that you can rest. So we learn that worrying is vain. God gives us rest. And secondly, physical sleep. And I just mentioned it a moment ago. Physical sleep is very important. And I learned that the hard way. You need your rest. It doesn't make you a tough man or woman to get four hours of sleep at night. It's actually foolishness. Now, there might be times you have to do that. I remember one time, this was, this was something. Again, I died. Now, y'all be visiting me in the hospital. We moved some vans, some big, giant vans that had our computer equipment in it. We used to do some crazy stuff like this. We had all our test equipment in these great big giant vans and they would load them on an airplane and take them into the woods, I mean in the jungle in Korea, and drop us off and put a generator on that thing and say, fix the airplanes when they come back. Man, are you guys out of your minds? Give me a gun first so that I can work here and not be scared to death. The point is they would move us around these vans. We moved these vans one time from the Philippines, from Subic Bay to somewhere, wherever we were going. And we worked for two and a half days straight with no sleep. You ever done that? I did it once. All I remember is when they finally said, you can go to sleep. I found a, went in an open bay barracks and found a rack that didn't have a body in it. And I climbed up in that thing. And when I woke up, I didn't know what day it was. I woke up and I didn't know if the sun was up or down. I didn't know what day it was. Two and a half days of no sleep. By the time two and a half days of no sleep, we were dangerous. And we were operating a crane and moving stuff around. I don't think the military does that stuff today. They're not allowed to do that. But it did it to us. Listen, you need your sleep. Did you know that God gave us rest for the body as a gift? And that it is God who allows us to lay our head down on a pillow and enjoy our rest. So, here it is. God builds the house. Just do the part God told you to do. Just do the thing that God gave you to do and God will take care of the rest. Now, the last part of this 
chapter, verses 3 to 5, talk about children. And it's very interesting. Let me deal with that before we close. Look at verses 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the, the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The first thing about these three verses is that we apply what, what David said in the first part. Just as God is providentially sovereign over all of life, over all that we do, so he is sovereign over our children, over having children. The fruit of the womb is a gift from God. Every child that's born is created by God in the womb. He creates the child. He, he creates a new soul. He gives that child life. Now listen to me very carefully. It matters not how the the circumstances were where the child was conceived. The child could be conceived in an illicit affair. That child's still created by God. Doesn't matter the circumstances of how it came about. That child could be created in the womb through an illegal affair. Could be some illegal activity, but the child had nothing to do with the illegal activity of the adults or the adult who perpetrated it. The child is created by God. It matters not if the child was created from from a moral failure where people have a child out of wedlock, God still created the child, which tells us that if God's sovereign over the creation of the child, then the child's life is precious in order to be protected in the womb. This stuff is not complicated. It really is pretty straightforward, but the world rejects it. The life in the womb is just as valuable as the life outside the womb. God creates babies. God creates children. God is the one who gives a life. Now, David said here that children are like arrows in the quiver, and a man's happy when his quiver's full. I have discovered that before there are arrows in the quiver, they're a handful already. Have you discovered that? Okay. And so there might be times when they're a handful before they're a quiver full that you're thinking, am I really going to be happy with these arrows at some point in life? Okay. But yes, David said, yes, they are, they are a joy and a happiness to parents. And let me tell you how that is. And you know if you have children. Children are challenging. Man, they can, they, can, they can challenge your spirituality. They can challenge your faith. They can challenge your patience. They can challenge your pocketbook. They can, they can challenge you in a lot of ways. But man, when God blesses them, and God blesses you with them and the fellowship with them and the joy with them. There's no measure of that, is there? There's no, there's no value that you can put on that. Uh, you know, I was teasing some, Sherry doesn't know this. I was, I was, someone said the other day, our son, Nathan, our biggest son, he's graduating next Friday from OCS. He'll be a brand new shiny ensign in the Navy. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, but he is uh He's got his mama wrapped around his finger now. His mama will, his mama will do anything. If he calls, she's on the phone. They're on Skype. Matter of fact, I get information about him through his mama. He, talk, he talks to her, and, uh, and I find out what's going on. Uh, but then, to be honest, that my oldest daughter sitting over there, all she's got to do is say the word, and I give it to her. So, I mean, so it's, and she knows it. Uh, today, she wanted to upgrade her flight for tomorrow. And I just handed her my credit card. I said, do whatever, go, you know, go online, do whatever you need to do. 
Listen, here's the point. And, I, and listen, I do that for all four of my kids. There's nothing, there's nothing I wouldn't do for all four of them. There's not a thing, not a money I wouldn't spend on them, not an investment in them. Why is that? Because they're a joy. Because they're, they're part of your life, man. They're a joy in your life. And, and especially, Sherry and I have said this over and over and over. When our kids were little, I would say to them, look, I'm not your friend, I'm your dad. I said, we got this dad child relationship right now. I said, but when you get grown, I'll be your friend. And what a joy that is through that transition to go from, go from being the dad responsibility to when they get grown to now have friends and a, and a relationship that you can enjoy their fellowship. And everybody in here who has grown kids knows what that feels like. That's exactly what David's saying right here. Man, they're a quiverful and, and, a, and a parent is happy with that. We are, we are blessed with that. Now let me close with four things that I want to share with you about the home that apply, that, that fall under what's applied here. I believe, I believe there are four basic things <clears throat> that we should do as parents, and then God does his part, to, to ensure that our children come to know Christ and that they become adults who honor God, which is our goal, right? As raising our kids, we want them to grow up and be adults who honor Jesus Christ. There are four things that I think do that. Number one, it is most advantageous, not always possible. I get it. There are single parents, single moms, single dads, and God can, God can bless that. But it is most advantageous to raise children in a home that's designed biblically with a mom and a dad in a loving relationship. A man and a woman who are married to one another, who are committed to one another, and the kids know they're committed to one another. And the kids know mom and dad aren't going anywhere. Man, that provides a foundation and, and, and an and a atmosphere where those kids are receptive and they're going to hear. All right? And in that, kind of, in that kind of scenario, you can love them unconditionally. You can discipline them, but love them unconditionally. That's the foundation, I believe. Now, again, single parents... God can bless in that situation because the world's sinful and it's messed up and because sin infects homes and sin breaks up homes and God knows that. And I've seen single moms and single dads raise their kids and God bless them greatly. So, so that's not a disqualifier. I'm just saying the easiest way, the best way is to do it God's way. Secondly, with that foundation, with that home, teach them about Jesus all the time. And I mean all the time. Talk about God's word as a normal part of life. Talk about God and what he wants for the family. Prayer, Bible reading, talking about verses, reinforcing what's done in the home with what's done at the church. I mean, I mean, listen, inundate those kids with the word of God. Saturate them with it. Because listen to me, the world's going to saturate them with a bunch of garbage if you aren't careful. So you saturate them in the word of God. Surround them with the word of God so that they understand God loves them and they understand they need to be saved. And at an early age, God will begin to deal with their heart and they'll get saved. That's God's part. Thirdly, listen very carefully. Respect for authority. This one's a critical one. I have seen Christian homes where mom and dad are Christians. They have a home and they're raising them in God's word. But the kids run amok to do whatever they want to and have no respect for authority. Listen to me very carefully right here. In the home, as God designed it, God designed mom and dad 
and the parental authority in the home to be a representation of the authority of God in that child's life. And what we are doing as moms and dads by having standards and rules and discipline in life is we are teaching that child that there's somebody you're responsible to and everybody is and his name is Jesus. And that you have to respect authority. You have to respect those who are placed in authority above you and you have to respect and obey the laws and the rules. A child who has no, listen to me, a child who has no respect for adults and no respect for authority is going to be trouble. The bigger they get, the more trouble they're going to be. A child who has no respect for mom or dad is going to have no respect for God. Do I need to say that again? A child who has no respect for mom and dad will have no respect for God. And if they have no respect for God, they're going to have no respect for the law, for the laws of the land, or for anybody else. That is a fact, and you can take it to the bank. Now, dads, I'm going to tell you, it is our responsibility in the home to be where the buck stops. That's our job. Not to be overbearing, not to be oppressive, not to be mean, not to rule with a heavy hand. But you can ask any one of my four kids, and they can give you a long list of what's allowed at my house and what's allowed at my house. And you can almost throw a scenario at them, and they'll tell you, oh, no, Dad ain't going for that. You can ask them. You know why that is? Because the bucks always stop with me. Listen, God designed it that way. God designed it that way. And dads, if you let your kids run amok, you don't teach them to respect their mama, none four of my kids can talk bad to their mom. You know why? I told them. She was my wife before you got here. Be careful. I was married to her before you got here. Sometimes you want to go, I brought you here and I'll send you out of here. You better be careful. <laughs> now listen, that's serious business. You let your kids badmouth your wife? Be disrespectful? Be disrespectful to you? That stuff don't fly. Because listen, ultimately, what do we want? We prayerfully desire with all our heart that they become a young adult who respects Jesus and respects the law of God. That's the only thing going to make them successful in life. Why? Because what have we been saying in this whole chapter? Unless God's building the house, it's emptiness. It's a waste of time. Finally, fourthly, God. God does his part then, deals with their heart, draws them, convicts them, and saves them. Man, I give you the testimonies. Unless God builds the house, you're wasting your time. So the question is, are you building with God or are you out there all by yourself? You're building with God or are you just beating your head against the wall like Paul was? Listen, get in, get in step with God in your life. Ask God what it is he wants you to do. And then do it. Teach your kids. Teach your grandkids. You say, boy, my kids are grown. Will them grandkids come along? Man, bring them to the house. Set them down and say, let me tell you about Jesus. Be the granddaddy, the grandmama who teaches them about God. You help mom and dad. You teach them. Unless God builds a house, we're wasting our time. Do you know them tonight? Have you given your heart to Jesus? Online, do you know you're saved? If not, you can ask him tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. God, it is a great privilege that you would allow us to come alongside and be involved in what you're doing in the world. God, it's not our plan. 
The gospel is not our plan. The church is not our plan. The ministries of the church are not our plan. They're yours. The church belongs to you. The people are yours. God, you love us beyond measure. Help us, God, to be involved in what you want us to be involved in. Help us to labor in the field you want us to labor in. And God, you give the increase, some 100-fold, some 60, and some 30. God, whatever increase you give, we thank you for it. And God, we thank you for allowing us to be part of it. Maybe there's somebody here tonight watching online or in this building, and they've never surrendered their heart to Jesus. God, maybe right now they would just say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I know it. God, I want to be saved. Forgive me. Save me. Forgive my sin. Lord, you will save all who will ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. If I can pray with you or help you, I'll be right down front. Just as I